0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM
1: 740. And Tim Spreen, our technical seducer. I like that. Technical seducer. That was George Genescu's line. I have to give credit where credit is due. George, of course, the affable, venerable, indefatigable host of Big Band Sunday Night here at our flagship station, AM 740 in Toronto. Uh, Tim was away last week. At a, uh, a wedding in Ottawa. Ottawa, God bless Ottawa, our nation's capital, but not the most exciting town. They roll up the sidewalks at about 8, 830. Uh, but you had a good time anyway, Tim. Good. Well, great to have you back. James Dooley did a really good job. I'm, I'm just saying. So watch it. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, always uh, a delight to do this, to kick off a show. We've got uh, three new affiliates to welcome. The conspiracy show. Let's start with KVSF, that's 101.5 FM in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and WEKY, 1340 AM in Richmond, Kentucky, and one more from the Bluegrass State, WIRV, 1550 AM in Irvine, Kentucky. So to Santa Fe, Richmond, Kentucky, Irvine, Kentucky, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, that is, welcome one and all. Great to be part of your lineup. And we look forward to adding more and more to the, uh, the growing family here at the uh, Conspiracy Show. You know, I'm looking outside here, and the fog has been rolling in. It reminds me of that uh, 1980s John Carpenter film. I don't know if you ever saw The Fog with Adrian Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis and John Houseman. <laughs> it's very if you don't if you get a chance to rent it. It's a rental, believe me. Uh, not that you're going to see it in the big screen anymore. But I paid back in the day, Tim. They had something called Two Dollar Tuesdays when they were trying to get people to, to come to the theater in the you know during the week. So Two Dollar Tuesdays, and that was one of the films that I saw on Two Dollar Tuesdays, The Fog, and it was worth every dollar. <laughs> yeah, this it's 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 a great premise, though. Uh, this former leper colony becomes shrouded in this, you know, killer fog, and then uh, all of a sudden, these zombie-like ghosts, who were—I I think they were—ghosts of pirates, descend on this leper colony to seek out their revenge for some reason. I—I I don't know. All I remember was Adrian Barbeau, of course, who used to be in uh, that show, Maud. She was Maud's daughter, Beatrice Arthur's daughter. Wonderful-looking uh, lady, and she played this all-night DJ in this little New England town. So, you know, here I am sitting in a theater, or in a radio studio, and the fog is rolling in. Not that I'm Adrian Barbeau, but I'm just saying, I'm getting a little nervous. (laughs) Ah, strange things going on, of course, everywhere, and right here on this show sometimes. You know, and for decades, there have been persistent rumors, tales, legends, that government agencies all around the world have been secretly collecting and studying data on bizarre beasts, amazing animals, and strange creatures. Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, sea serpents, get this, psychic pets, the Chupacabra, the Abominable Snowman, have all attracted official classified interest. And now for the first time, the full fearsome facts are finally revealed in our good friend Nick Redfern's Monster Files. Always a delight to have Nick with us on the program is the author of many books including The Pyramids and the Pentagon, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Keep Out contactees, memoirs of a monster hunter, and the world's weirdest places. He's appeared on more than 70 television shows, including Fox News, BBC's Out of This World, History Channel's Monster Quest, America's Book of Secrets, Ancient Aliens, and UFO Hunters. He writes regularly for UFO UFO magazine Mysterious Universe and Fate, and he joins us from the great state of Texas, Nick Redfern. How are you?
2: Hey, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How's things?
1: Terrific, thank you. I just I was uh, I was joking with not joking but mentioning uh, to George Chinescu who is the host of the program that precedes mine how uh, you know you, you join me on the program and you're writing like must be 2-3 books a year and just it's, I'm fascinated by the fact that you know you're originally from from England and you find yourself in the middle of Texas as I mean do you ever do you ever you've been there now for <clears throat> for a number of years and and uh, but, but do you ever um Get over that culture shock. I imagine it must be, a, a, you know, a huge culture
2: shock. Well, I wouldn't say it's so much a shock. I mean, it's just you know, there's a lot of differences. But I've been here 12 years now, and um, you know, I live um, just on the outskirts of Dallas, so it's not like you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I sort of grew up only about five or six miles from the English city of Birmingham, which is you know a huge city. So. And I just moved, traded one city for another, basically. So, uh, in that sense, you know, there are some differences and uh, and some similarities, you know. So, um, but I get back home quite a bit, so it's not like, um, you know, that much of a culture shock where I'm just sort of thrust from one to the other. I sort of, uh, you know, go back and catch up with friends on the the gossip and whatever's going on. So. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, you know, Texas obviously has its uh, fair share of, you know, bizarre stories, so there's uh, obviously a lot – That's a it's a rich mind or a rich vein to be mined there for you. But congratulations on Monster Files. Oh, well, thanks. And I, 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 one of the things that jumped out at, at me immediately uh, was, you know, on this program over the years I've had I've had pet psychics mm-hmm. on the program, uh, but I've never even thought about psychic pets. <laughs> uh, what, pray tell, is a psychic pet, and why is – you know, the government interested in psychic pets?
2: Well, this is a story that goes back to the early 1950s, specifically 1952. And the chapter in the book is actually based on official files which have now surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. And they relate to a, a small U.S. Army program, little project that was initiated in fifty two to try and determine if um, pets like dogs and cats uh, possessed ESP. And the whole point was to try... It was primarily focused upon dogs, but as I said, he did look at cats and even pigeons for some strange reason. But um, they primarily looked at pet dogs. And the the idea was to try and see if there was any evidence that dogs possessed ESP because they wanted to try and train them to use their psychic powers, if they did, to try and find landmines on battlefields. Um, And it sounds bizarre concept until you sort of realize, you know, these are official documents, and they talk about how they sort of befriended, they don't actually say how, but they got uh, the assistance of somebody who owned two German Shepherd dogs, one was now called Binnie, and the other one was called Tessie, and uh, some of the uh, aspects of the files are still blacked out, and so they don't exactly explain how they determined the dogs had psychic powers, but evidently the military was satisfied. And they launched a number of operations where the dogs would be sent out to areas of um, West Coach Beach along the coast of California. And the military would bury dummy landmines all around the beach and in some cases actually out at sea, like about 30 or 40 feet out at sea and about 10 feet down. And um, the the dogs would go out and apparently sort of about 70 or 80% of the time they would find them and... um, they actually ruled out that the dogs are using sort of their, you know, a powerful um, sense of smell to find the um, the mines, and actually concluded that they were done by psychic powers. Um, the The program was actually cancelled after about a year, unfortunately, because although the military concluded the project and the powers worked, they also conceded that the dogs couldn't control the, you know, their ability every time; it was sort of hit and miss. But when it worked, it worked really well. And when he didn't, they just couldn't do anything about it. And so they decided to go back to sort of the more conventional ways of spying on the enemy, etc. But it's kind of like an early precursor to the remote viewing programs of the 70s and 80s.
1: I was just going to say did, that. Yeah, a lot yeah, of parallels like there.
2: Human subjects. But this was sort of, this was 30, 40 years before that, just the turn of the 50s. But actually, using dogs instead of people.
1: Well, of course, now uh, we know that uh, that dogs uh, have been used, or dogs can be used mm-hmm. uh, by uh, people who suffer from uh, seizures, epileptic seizures. Yeah. Dogs can actually predict when the seizure is coming on. They can detect breast cancer. Uh, now, whether that's intuitive or whether, again, that can be attributed to an incredible sense of smell, whether we're putting, you know, someone who has an epileptic seizure puts out some sort of a hormone,
2: yeah.
1: uh, hard to say. But um, I think all of us who've ever had a pet can attest to the fact that they are incredibly intuitive.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that, I mean, in, in ways that are different to us, you know, their, their skills are far great. I mean, their sense of smell, you know, is incredibly stronger. You know, they hear different levels of, uh, you know, different pitches in terms of hearing, etc. Um, so in those respects, you know, that they may not, animals may not have the intelligence level we have, but a lot of them have skills that we don't. I mean, you take a spider, you know, there's no way a human being could ever spin a spider's web. You know, it's incredibly intricate, but we could never do it, you know, but, but a spider can. So.
1: Well, I'm, I'm curious to know... Uh, and when you how you how you got a hold of these documents? I mean, are they widely available? Did you have to put in a Freedom of Information Act request?
2: Yeah, and how? That, f- that's primarily what happened. Was it's like I suppose any aspect of investigative journalism is that you know if you get a snippet of a story or you know for example some of the cases in the book, um, what happened was that I came across a reference in a file perhaps that had already been declassified that referenced another one. I mean, a, a good example um, is the the British government's files on the Loch Ness Monster. There's an internal reference in, the, in one of the documents to an old sea serpent file put together by the British Navy, the Royal Navy, back in the 1800s. And so I then went searching, fishing, if you like, for that uh, file, and that opened doors to internal references to other files. So it's kind of like that, that once you sort of get hold of one file, very, a lot of people don't realize, you know, that the the document itself may reference other documents, and then, you know, it's a case of applying for them. So it's pretty much like, you know, you'd investigate, you know, I work also as a journalist and author, but, you know, if I was writing a, a feature for a newspaper on a murder or, a you know, a, a bank robbery, you know, you'd follow the same sort of investigative techniques and just try and put the bigger picture together, and that's what chiefly opened the doors to these files.
1: Nick Nick Redfern is with us, the author of Monster Files, a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. Well, you mentioned the Loch Ness Monster. And and, – Tell us or give us a peek inside uh, this document. I mean, was it just a passing reference? Do they have? I mean, it seems like military mm-hmm. organizations or intelligence groups uh, will, will study just about anything uh, yeah. if they think it's of interest to the public. Uh, it may yeah. be more of a sociological uh, you know, type of, of project for them. But what interest did the military in Britain have with the Loch Ness Monster?
2: Well, this actually goes back to the uh, mid 1960s, and an organization called JARIC. And Jarek stands for Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Centre. And this is an arm of the British military that, you know, say, for example, there were rumours that, you know, at the height of the Cold War, the the Soviets were building a new missile base or something like that, and they would send high-flying spy planes over to take pictures. Well, the guys at Jarek were the people who would analyse the pictures. In other words, they were sort of the elite of the British military when it comes to analysing spy photographs and determining what the pictures show. You know, do they show missiles? Do they show... Evidence of hangars being built, that kind of thing. And in the mid 60s, um, there was a group within Jarrett that got interested in the Loch Ness Monster and they acquired copies, and in some cases, the originals of film footage and photographs purporting to show strange creatures in Loch Ness. And they actually spent a lot of time... Let me just jump to- in
1: here, uh, Nick. Sorry to jump okay, in and interrupt, sure. but we'll take a timeout. We'll come back and we'll discuss the Loch Ness monster when we return. Monster Files with Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And if you've ever wondered whether the Pentagon has the body of a Bigfoot on ice or what the U.S. military is hiding from us about lake monsters or what the link is between the CIA and the abominable snowman, you've come to the right place. Nick Redfern has research researched this extensively, and it's all to be found in his new book, Monster Files, a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. And Nick, before the break, we were talking about the uh, British military and uh, the Loch Ness Monster, and they had obtained some footage of the uh, the Loch Ness Monster back in the 1960s. So I guess the question is, you know, why were they interested in it, and what exactly did they conclude?
2: Well, it actually stemmed, uh, Richard, from a guy in the British Parliament, in the British government, who'd served in the military during the Second World War, and he developed an interest um, in the the issue of the Loch Ness Monster, and actually approached friends and colleagues in Jarek, this organisation that analysed film footage, and said, "You know, I'm interested. In, would you be interested in sort of setting up a little program?" look into it and they actually said yes we will you know it kind of sounded like an interesting diversion for them and, and this wasn't sort of like an outside of ours thing you know like a little off the record thing it was part of their official job and um the the people at Jarrick um were sent various uh pieces of film footage and photographs that had been shared um <clears throat> you know with, within the the ufo excuse me within the loch ness monster research arena if you like And because they had the tools and the technology to analyze film footage and blow it up and make the pictures clearer, etc., in um, somewhere like seven or eight pieces of footage and photographs, they were able to rule out, for example, things like wave formations, uh, small boats, that kind of thing, and actually concluded that the pictures showed or the film showed creatures um, that seemed to be under intelligent control anywhere from about 12 to 15 feet long and that seem to be partly out of the water but with significant portions of the body under the water and leaving wakes that seem to be evidence of of a living animal rather than, as I said, like a small boat. Now, you know, when you consider the the calibre of the people doing the analysis, um, as I said, you know, the elite of the British military's photo analysts, then it really sort of makes you realise that you know, when you've got people of that caliber investigating things and coming to those conclusions, it sort of really does add weight to the the credibility of the mystery, if you like.
1: And it also uh, causes one to wonder, you know, what else do they have uh, locked in those files that we don't know about, that they won't release? Well, and, uh,
2: yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually a file, uh, or files, I should say, from the 1980s and the 1990s on the Loch Ness Monster. We know all of those haven't yet been released. One of them um, was related to a project that was actually cancelled before it began. It was seen as being too sort of unfeasible. But the idea was the British government, under the uh, when Margaret Thatcher was in power, uh, it was basically to try and train dolphins uh, to swim in Loch Ness and look for the creatures, if you like. And the plan was to have them fitted with sonar equipment and cameras that could be automatically, um, you know, remote censored to take pictures, etc., in the event they came across anything. But reading the file, it doesn't look like there's much uh, thought was given to the idea, well, what happened if the, you know, the dolphins and the Loch Ness monsters confronted each other? You know, it might not come off the best for the dolphins. And so the program was sort of quietly shut down. But it was intriguing that, you know, the government of the day spent quite a bit of money sort of researching how to get the dolphins, you know, and how to strap them with all this equipment and train them in Loch Ness. And it was all done under the under the cloak of secrecy throughout
1: the 1980s. I wish the, uh, you know, the intelligence groups and the military would leave the poor dolphins alone. First of all, of course, in the, the early 1960s, we had uh, Operation Mongoose, where they were going to try and train dolphins to assassinate Castro when he went for his morning uh, dip in the uh, uh, Atlantic or the Caribbean or whatever it was, and now they want dolphins to track down the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, and, of course, we just had... Um, we have this new theory uh, about the Loch Ness Monster that's just surfaced, pardon the pun, uh, that Nessie is just essentially bubbles uh, produced by some seismic activity on the floor of, uh, of Loch Ness. What do, you, what do you make of that?
2: Uh, not much. Uh, <laughs> um, um, you know, I think there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, there are a lot of cases regarding Loch Ness Monster can be explained as things like... Um, sort of freak waves, you know, where the waves sort of roll and it looks like something snaking along the water. Um, You also get trees, you know, that decay, rot and fall into Loch Ness and then as the vegetation rots and, you know, the gas gets leaked, etc., they do sometimes float to the surface. And so, you know, you can see like an eight foot long tree trunk. Um, So things like that do happen and occasionally you get seals in Loch Ness, which, okay, they're much smaller. But at a distance, you might think something like that was a Loch Ness Monster. However, when you get credible people talking about seeing like a hump and a large neck sticking anywhere from sort of two to five feet out of the water and the neck is associated with the hump as well, then it's very difficult to sort of reconcile that with just bubbles. You know what I mean? That, that's clearly a sighting of something solid, And tangible, as far as I'm concerned. Oh,
1: I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, I I, I was um, mentioning, you know, the and it's on on the back of the book, uh, cribbing from the back of the book. Does the Pentagon have the body of Bigfoot on ice? It's a very provocative uh, (laughs) question. So let me ask you. I mean, when you dug into this, what? What does the the U.S. government know about Bigfoot? And do they, in fact, you suspect, have a body on ice? Well,
2: you know, they may may well have. This story goes back to 1980, May 1980, when in Washington State, the uh, Mount St. Helens, which had been sort of rumbling and bubbling with volcanic activity for a while, suddenly catastrophically exploded. There was this huge volcanic eruption that literally blew away part of the mountain, and it sent ash and dust and dirt and debris literally thousands of feet into the air above Mount St. Helens and actually killed somewhere in the region of about 60 people who refused to leave their homes and didn't sort of heed the warnings as to what was going to happen. Um, And, of course, you know, anybody who lived through that pier will probably remember the whole Mount St. Helens disaster. Um, But in addition to the people who were killed, the uh, wildlife records suggest there was somewhere in the region of about 1,000 elk were killed and tens of thousands of smaller animals as well. And, of course, a lot of emergency services and the military in there lending hand and assistance, you know, to help the people and even the animals, you know, that have been injured, etc. And since literally almost in just a couple of months after Mount St. Helens occurred and right through to the present day, we have reports from probably about nine or ten retired military personnel who said that they were in the area at the time helping these uh, sort of emergency procedures um, when they either saw or were told by colleagues of these large double-rotor military helicopters coming in with these very powerful nets and airlifting these dead bodies of what were described as like gigantic hairy apes or what like giant hairy humanoid creatures out of the area. And, you know, the rumour is from there that they were taken to military bases for secret autopsies. Now... This is one of the cases in the book, as I point out, where we don't have the documents, we just have the testimony, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's not credible. You know, there are a lot of good cases on record where, you know, the the witness testimony is the most important thing of all. Um, And I think it's intriguing that, you know, we get different soldiers and different military personnel giving their own opinion, but from their own perspective as well. You know, if everybody was saying exactly the same thing from the same angle, etc., that would be a bit suspicious. But it makes more sense and adds to credibility when somebody knows about the area where it occurred, somebody else knows something of the autopsy, somebody else talks about where the bodies were taken, which is what you would expect, you know, if they were involved in, from the perspective of different units, etc. But it basically comes down to the military reportedly finding somewhere in the region of perhaps five or six bodies and, incredibly, maybe a, a couple of injured ones that survived and airlifting them out and trying to figure out what they were but the big question is you know why would that be hidden you know why hide the fact that north america has a giant ape well one of the other things i point out in the book is that this gets in really controversial areas but there are a lot of cases on record where bigfoot has actually been seen in the same time and location as ufo
1: mm, exactly yes
2: to the idea that could bigfoot be something connected with that or a paranormal creature and that might that might explain the secrecy. You know, if it was just a giant ape, it would be a, it would be a zoological discovery. You know, it wouldn't be something for the Pentagon to hide. But maybe if, you know, you have these weird UFO overtones to the mystery of Bigfoot, that might be a reason on its own, you know.
1: This is a fascinating uh, chapter. I mean, this is almost... This one incident uh, with all of these military eyewitnesses uh, is almost worthy of a, a full-length, you know, treatment all on its own, don't you think?
2: Well, yeah, I mean... I mean, if more information came through, I mean, granted, it probably could be. I mean, what what I've done in that chapter pretty much uh, amounts to it, albeit in summary form, it amounts to all the information we have so far. But, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's one of these cases, like many, where it starts off with just a few snippets and a couple of witnesses, and then somebody goes digging into it, and they find more and more. You know, I think, ideally, it would probably be more suited to somebody who actually lives in that area, you know, and who can chase down every lead. Um, I think that would be the ideal way to do it. But, you know, it's like Roswell. That started off with just, like, one or two people who spoke out and then eventually, you know, amounted to hundreds. So it wouldn't be impossible, you know, that if somebody really wanted to get on the tail of this story and, you know, the Mount St. Helens Bigfoot autopsies, etc., that, you know, they might open a huge can of worms.
1: Well, there's your assignment, Nick. Go to it. <laughs> As if you're not busy enough. But, uh, you know, to me, that is a, a story that definitely needs to be fleshed out. Uh, I've got to ask you about this, and, and that is this uh, U.S. Army uh, Major Edward Lansdale, the brains behind a monstrous vampire... But let's. We're going to come up on a break in about five minutes. But let's let's get the start, story started sure. anyway.
2: All right. Well, Lansdale um, was in the 1950s and 60s. He was sort of brilliant um, officer, if you like, or strategist in the field of psychological warfare. That's basically sort of trying to defeat the enemy by very alternative means that don't always or, or ever. You know, involve like guns, but, um, bombs, bullets, whatever. It's essentially trying to play with the mind of the enemy to try and confuse them and manipulate them. And Lansdale worked on a number of programs which involved the, the spreading and sort of creation or re-emerging of, of myths and folklore to try and frighten um, particularly superstitious enemy nations and, and troops. And the one, um, particular case that I talk about in the book, this involved an operation that Lansdale was involved in in the Philippines in the early 1950s. And there was an uprising by what were called the Huk rebels, which is H-U-K. And the Philippine government asked America, you know, can you help us defeat these rebels? And, you know, the, the American government said, yes, you will be happy to. And as well as sending military personnel in, uh, they sent Lansdale in. He actually became quite good friends with the Philip with high ranking people in the Philippine governments and military. And he said, Well, you know, do the Hook rebels have any particular superstitions that we can sort of work on and perhaps exploit them that way? And they said, Well yes, they have a great fear of this creature known as the Aswang Vampire, which is A S W A N G and it was supposedly like a like a terrible, terrifying, blood sucking creature or creatures that lived in the forests of The Philippines. And so Edward Lansdale had a brilliant idea to try and bring the Aswang vampire to life. And he did it in a very, very strange and alternative fashion. And um, the fashion was that, you know, regardless of whether there were any realities behind these rumors and myths of this blood sucking creature, um, Lansdale came up with this sort of fascinating idea to create this device which would sort of mimic. The mark of a vampire you know it sort of it would shoot these two powerful sharp prongs into the neck of a person, which would give the you know the image of like the classic vampire fangs and the bite etc and so they they had this device specifically crafted by military intelligence, and they sent like a delta force team out into the forest to find the nearest Huck rebel camp and late at night after the sun had set, they grabbed the nearest Huck rebel. Um, and pulled him out into the woods, killed him, and jabbed him in the neck with this device. Then they hung his body up from a tree by his ankles and drained the blood out of the neck wound, which is like a large and, you know, gaping wound. And then while it was still under the cover of darkness, the next morning, before the morning, I should say, they took the body back to the camp, knowing it would be found by his friends and colleagues. And, of course, it struck fear into them, their colleague, you know, drained of blood, looking pale, with these wounds on his neck. And they fled the area. And, of course, the area they fled was key strategic ground that the um, Philippine government wanted back. And, and they got it back. And they kept doing this time and time again, pushing back the Huk rebels by spreading more and more of these sort of fake vampire killings, etc.
1: That is a fascinating t- that 's a long way to go uh, <laughs> however, uh, it proved very effective and and one has to also wonder then if if uh, the military has used this is you know obviously not uh, a part of what you 're talking about in this book but the, the whole UFO phenomenon many people have have uh, theorized uh, that the military is doing exactly the same thing with with UFOs using it as a cover story yeah. How- however, when we come back, uh, I want to talk about the big cats in the UK and how this controversy actually uh, goes right to the heart of the royal family Nick Redfern, author of Monster Files a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals stay with us Nick Redfern stays with us, the author of Monster Files let me just crib here from one of the chapters, the ABCs of a royal conspiracy, in the late 1980s English monster hunter Jonathan Downs became personally embroiled in a controversy that began with the investigation of a mysterious large cat or cats on the loose in Britain and which ultimately extended into the heart of the British monarchy, military and government and the domain of deep and dark official secrecy. Of course, uh, Nick, uh, in the UK they have this phenomenon called uh, alien big cats or ABCs and, of course, Britain is not home to an indigenous uh, population of large cat, uh, panthers or, or cougars or jaguars or, what, or tigers or what have you. And yet, uh, hundreds of witnesses claim that they have seen these, uh, these big animals. Now, first of all, uh, what does this alien big cat story have to do with the royal family?
2: Well, that's a good question. It's a sort of a strange story. But John Downs, who you just mentioned, he's a good friend of mine. John runs a group Uh, a full-time group called the Centre for Fortean Zoology, named after Charles Fort, an early 20th century investigator of strange phenomena. And you're right that every year in Britain we get hundreds of reports of these so-called alien big cats. And other than house cats in Britain, you know, pet cats, there shouldn't be anything roaming around, you know, like like a mountain lion or anything like that at all, or a black leopard, but people see them. Um, the only wildcat in Britain is called the Scottish wildcat but even that is barely any bigger than a normal house cat you know you wouldn't even look twice at it it's quite fierce but uh, but it's not you know of any size at all so it's sort of a bit of a conundrum that people see these things and some people think they're sort of third and second or third generation escapees from private zoos which may be the case in some of them some of the reports and Others, you know, which don't know where they're from, but people see enough of them every year, and even, you know, the police report them as well. Um, so it's clearly a phenomenon. Now, in the late 1980s, John got a call from a former uh, British Army intelligence operative who'd been involved in an operation in the mid-1980s to shadow and follow uh, Princess Diana. Um, and this goes back to round about 1984, 1985, when apparently the British government heard rumours that terrorists were planning on either kidnapping or assassinating Princess Diana. So what they did, they set up like a small military intelligence unit to watch her carefully everywhere she went. And Diana herself apparently didn't know anything about this, you know, it was sort of just shadowing her every movement. Um... And this it gets into controversial areas because, as is known today but wasn't known then, but this was revealed to John that this all relates to uh, when Diana and Charles's marriage was sort of on the rocks and, you know, she'd been seeing a few other people. And the military knew about this because they'd been watching her. So, you know, they, it was a case where they didn't <laughs> they didn't say anything. Uh, so they kept quiet about that, you know, and just referenced it presumably in internal files that, you know, Diana had been to... This sort of clandestine meeting with one of her boyfriends, um, and they followed uh, on one occasion to the walls of, of Dartmoor in Devonshire, England, which is, looks straight out of you know the Hand of the Baskervilles, which is actually where the Hand of the Baskervilles is set. And on one occasion, when they were watching the property where Diana was staying uh, through night scope equipment, you know, with, with rifles, etc., you know, just keeping a lookout for terrorists, etc., they saw this huge black cat prowling around the grounds of the property. And they described the, the uh, guy who spoke to John described it as like a, a huge body, like about six feet long, very muscular, thick neck, and a long, powerful tail. You know, it looked just like a, a huge black jaguar, something like that. And the military, of course, was in a total quandary. They didn't know whether to shoot it and then risk giving away why they were there and if that came out and the media got hold of it, number one, the media would have realised that Diana was being watched and this whole terrorist story would have come out. Number two, it would have revealed to the media that, you know, Diana was seeing somebody behind Charles's back and that would have come tumbling out. So this unit decided the best thing to do was to do nothing and say nothing and just hope that the cat went on its way. This was like two in the morning or three in the morning. And he actually did, It sort of prowled around, presumably, you know, looking for small animals to eat and then wandered off, you know, into the foggy moors and was not seen again. Um, but John got this story, the whole thing in 1989. And this was long before Diana herself, you know, confessed to that, yes, yeah, she had, you know, boyfriends on the side, etc. So that in itself actually added credibility to the story, but it was sort of a fascinating one because it had so many twists and turns. You know, going from Diana's private life to military intelligence uh, shadowing a, you know, a national security issue with her possibly being, uh, you know, an attempted kidnapping or something like that.
1: Indeed, and and uh, it's it's fascinating. You know, despite the fact that we've had hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness uh, sightings of these big cats, alien big cats in the UK, uh, it's not until someone in the military. Uh, comes forward and, or some document is released that uh, we give greater, greater credence uh, to, to it uh, however I, I, I feel you know at this point there is not much doubt that there are
2: no, not.
1: these huge jungle cats roaming England how they got there that's the mystery Nick Redfern stays with us the author of Monster Files here on the Conspiracy Show my name is Richard Serrett Nick Redfern stays with us for just a few moments. Uh, Yet, yeah, just a reminder that uh, starting next week, I will be broadcasting from the Elite Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. That's located in uh, southern Greece, in Messenia. Uh, if you look at a map and you see uh, at the bottom of Greece those sort of five fingers uh, sticking uh, out like a hand, uh, that those um, those fingers, that's that's Messenia, beautiful uh, a part of. Uh, Uh, Greece, And that, of course, is the mighty Aphrodite's ancestral homeland. So I will be there, uh, as I say, broadcasting live for the next five weeks. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with us. Media scientist Nelson Thal talking about the lunar landing hoax. The Liberty Man, John Moore, will be along to talk about Planet X. Uh, Jim Elvidge from The Universe Solved uh, with some fascinating uh, stories about our mysterious uh, universe. And much more. Oh, Ron Patton from Paranoia Magazine. Uh, So be sure to tune in and... uh, Uh, We'll be actually leaving tomorrow uh, with the the twin boys and uh, can't wait to get there. The Land of the Olive and uh, uh, the Birthplace of Democracy and Philosophy and Herodotus, Socrates, Plato. Just so much everywhere you step. It's just history, history everywhere. All right, Nick Redfern, i got to ask you about the, uh, the strange character Frank Hansen. Mm-hmm. who claimed that he was in possession of a uh, a primitive humanoid that I guess he, he uh, that, that was preserved in a block of ice that he plucked out of the uh, the, the water around the, uh, the, the coast of Siberia. Uh, tell me about this story, Nick.
2: Yeah, this goes back to the uh, mid-1960s, a controversial story concerning something be- that became known as the Minnesota Iceman. And Frank Hansen actually lived in Minnesota, and he was someone who put on like a lot of, Entertaining displays at state fairs You know, not sort of like, you know The old style so-called freak shows But, you know, there will be things like Two-headed snakes on display and that sort of thing You know, and is it real or is it fake That kind of thing um, And in the mid-1960s um, Hansen started showing this thing That became known as the Minnesota Iceman And it looked just like a large Humanoid, hair-covered creature Encased in a block of ice um, and there were various theories as to what it was or where it came from. One was that it was actually shot somewhere in the forests of Minnesota. Another theory, an interesting one, was that he was actually killed in the jungles of Vietnam during the Vietnam War and smuggled back um, in a body bag and supposedly transferred to a rich millionaire that Hanson was in touch with, who eventually allowed Hanson to put it on display, display briefly. And in the mid-'60s, he was actually seen by... A couple of well-respected cryptozoologists um bernard hoovelman's um uh, was one of them he's a very uh, well-respected cryptozoologist and he essentially said that when he examined it he could actually sort of smell the stench of rotten meat coming through the ice which if it was a model you know that would be sort of a very sophisticated technique but he said it looked very real you know it looked um like some sort of hair covered primitive humanoid creature and it was put on display for years and eventually, uh, or ultimately, I should say, the, the real one, if you like, was supposedly transferred back to The Millionaire, and then you know the, the model, a model equivalent of it was put on display instead. And, of course, you know, there are people who said that there was only ever a model. But you can actually see the model version there. It's on display at a place called the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas. And you can go down there and sort of see it's still encased in ice to this day. Um, so we're not sure what it was. But what we know, the reason I mention this in the book, is because when rumours started floating around that it was a primitive humanoid and that it was shot and killed, you had all bureaucracy started asking questions, well, does that mean there was a murder involved? Even if it was a primitive human, it was still a human. And actually the FBI got involved and opened a small file on it and actually sent one of their agents out to visit Frank Hansen, which kind of, you know, I guess sort of... It, get him, basically. That's the best way to describe it. You know, in his own words, he was sort of very worried when he found out the FBI was asking questions about him and the Minnesota Iceman. And eventually an agent went round and looked at it and threw the ice and said, well, you know, it doesn't look human. It's not and it's not part of our jurisdiction if it's just, you know, a hairy oddball creature. And they satisfied him and just left. And I think Frank Hansen basically sort of breathed a deep sigh of relief at the fact that. Um, you know, he was sort of left alone. But it was one of these sort of bizarre and surreal episodes where a sort of a circus freak creature encased in ice actually attracts the, the attention of the FBI.
1: Certain locations seem to attract a strange uh, strangeness, and and, uh, West Virginia is one of those places. uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a a regular uh, visitor to the program, has written an entire book just about the strange creatures that come out of West Virginia. We're all, of course, familiar with the uh, the the uh, the Mothman, and uh, down in uh, uh, Mount uh, Point Pleasant, rather, they have their annual Mothman uh, uh, convention. And, of course, it was celebrated in a famous, uh, you know, the book and uh, the movie The Mothman Prophecies. But uh, something else strange going on in West Virginia. Uh, Oh, I guess about, closing in on about 30 years ago, this all sort of kicked off with the discovery of a couple of German shepherds found, the mutilated corpses found completely drained of blood. And uh, this wasn't the Mothman people were seeing. What was it?
2: Well, yeah, this is a creature that um, a lot of people described as similar to Mothman. Many people don't realize that, you know, creatures like Mothman have been reported all around the world, and you can find them throughout culture and mythology and folklore, dating back thousands of years. You know, if you look at things, for example, like harpies and gargoyles, you know, they actually have some very deep similarities with some of the creatures that people see today, like the Mothman. But the one you're talking about, yeah, this was, this was a creature very much like Mothman, um, and probably with hindsight, more like the so called creature in the Jeepers Creepers movies, if you've ever seen any of those. Sort of like a large humanoid, but with these bat like wings that sort of showed membranes and like a leathery type appearance. And the story was that um, the attacks had actually occurred near a government facility um, where a number of dogs had been killed. And people had seen this creature sort of rather ironically on what was always like a dark and stormy night, you know, when the wind was blowing and the clouds were falling, you know, just sort of like a a thunderous evening. And they would see this creature sort of um, hovering around the facility or, in one case, actually sort of prowling around on the roof of it and then it sort of just soared off into the sky, Um, you know, just like some sort of, you know, 1500s gargoyle or something along those lines. And again, reportedly, when these animals' attacks occurred, and the fact that the sightings occurred in the vicinity, direct vicinity, of a government facility. Um, An investigation was undertaken by the authorities and all the eyewitnesses who worked there were interviewed and asked to prepare, like, a summary report. And the upshot of it was, was that, you know, it just baffled the the security people and everybody involved, the fact that they didn't really know what to do with it other than collate the reports and try and make some, some sense of it. But... You know, when you're dealing with sightings of, a, like, a large-winged humanoid monster in the vicinity of a government facility, there's really not much sense you can make of it. And the sightings, like with Mothman in Point Pleasant, they actually just came to a grinding halt, and whatever the creature was, it, it left. But apparently there was something like a, like a 20- or 30-page file put together that contained all the various reports. From the from the government eyewitnesses,
1: didn't a similar creature though end up in your uh, parts in Houston?
2: Yeah, there's a, a again what I talk about in the book, uh, sort of deep similarities to this. It became known as the Houston Batman, and um, this actually predates Mothman by about fifteen years. It was seen in Houston in the early fifties, and um, the description is very similar. It's like a, a large humanoid with glowing eyes that would sort of prowl in the woods and it was occasionally seen perched on trees and, and people still report this to this day, this sort of giant humanoid creature that they occasionally report seeing, you know, against a backdrop of like a full moon where it suddenly appears, you know, when it's it's lit up by the moon. So uh you know, there's a lot of these things all over the planet and um, you know, not just Point Pleasant.
1: Well, after after researching uh, for the book, Nick, what, what was your, your takeaway? I mean, a great line here on the back is, despite what your parents might have told you when you were a child, monsters, creepy creatures, and terrifying beasts really do exist, mm. and our governments know all about them. I mean, is that the takeaway? Is that true?
2: Yes. I mean, you know, cryptozoology, Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, Chupacabra, late monsters, you know, there's there's enough credible witness testimony, in my view, to suggest these creatures, animals, however you want to term them, are real. And the very fact that many of the cases I refer to in the book um, come via official freedom of information documentation that surfaced, then that adds further credence. And, um, you know, I think what we're actually seeing is the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's lots been written over on Bigfoot over the years. Very little has been written on what the government knows about it. So, you know, I think even I'll admit to having... As someone who's written a book on it, you know we're still in the early stages of research into this field, but I think it's going to be sort of like a a fertile one for you know far deeper research as well in the future.
1: Well, that's good news for Nick Redfern and for all of us who uh, who enjoy your books. What's up? What's up next, Nick? What are you working on now?
2: I'm working on a couple of UFO ones. Uh, I'm doing one uh, Men in Black book. I've done a couple of Men in Black books, but I'm working on another because I get so many reports. And the other one um, is like a study of. Um, UFO cases where the files have suspiciously vanished, you know, it's like the exact opposite of Freedom of Information, where we've got the files. This is where files, we know they existed or should have existed, and they've just sort of, they've vanished, you know, we just don't know where they are.
1: Were you able to cover any of the uh, the citizen hearing on UFO disclosure?
2: No, I wasn't, unfortunately, no. I, I wasn't at that, so, you know, I just sort of read it all online like everybody else,
1: well, I mean, what is your sense uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, you know the the momentum that the disclosure movement seems to be gathering? Do you do you, do you get a well, sense that that they're making any progress? That maybe the government in the United States uh, will uh, disclose at some point?
2: Well, you know, I, I think in in terms of the the idea in general, it's a great one, and there's a, there's no doubt there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it, and that's a very good thing. You know, without enthusiasm, without pushing we're not going to get anywhere. The only downside as I see it is that I'm not convinced that you know it's a government per se that's actually hiding the truth. You know everybody points finger at the government and says oh they're the bad guys. I actually don't think when it comes to the UFO subject that is the case. I think the real deep secrets are hidden by you know almost like a secret government within government if you see what I mean rather than the elected authorities being the people who are hiding it. So you know i think knocking on the door of, of the white house or buckingham palace or wherever you know certainly gets publicity and it may open some doors but i think the really deep secrets aren't held by these agencies they're held by these sort of black box type groups you know and there's a black box within a black box that kind of thing and and i don't i think these people They're not going to give up the secrets until they're ready to, no matter how many people go hammering on the door, unfortunately. But in saying that, you know, any exposure and publicity is good. And, you know, the the disclosure movement is demonstrating that. And also by the fact, you know, there are a lot of credible military and government people testifying to
1: of, you know, it's um, really a shame that you weren't called to testify, Nick, because I don't know of anyone out there who's written it so extensively or is, who's, who has dedicated so much of his time and research into the whole, you know, men in black phenomenon. What, just, I mean, just in the the minute that we have left, uh, do you think that these, this, you know, this, uh, whether or not the, the whole uh, UFO file has gone, you know, into, the, into private hands, you know, the, uh, the the research yes. and development uh, wing of various you know
2: yeah I actually do think I think it's gone in partly into private enterprises and also sort of black projects you know there's like so called these so called black projects that aren't answerable to Congress and Congress doesn't even necessarily know they exist you know and they're buried so deep that even the elected government isn't necessarily aware of them and I think it's there where the secrets are found but of course. That is an incredibly dif- uh, difficult world to sort of to look into because, you know, how can you look into a project when you don't even know it officially exists? That's the problem I think we're facing, you know.
1: Exactly. Well, Nick, listen, uh, look forward to your uh, next book as always, and congratulations once again on Monster Files. All always right. A-
2: Thanks a lot, Richard.
1: Always appreciate it. Nick Redfern. Thanks. The Conspiracy Show, your portal into the program, our website www.richardserrett.com and say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett.
0: Canada the conspiracy show with Richard Saran
1: from Zuma Radio AM 740 Welcome I just wanted to welcome uh, once and all once uh, once again three new affiliates to the conspiracy show family KVSF 101.5 FM in Santa Fe New Mexico WK Sorry, W-E-K-Y, 1340 AM in Richmond, Kentucky, and W-I-R-V, 1550 AM, Irvine, Kentucky. Uh, so, welcome. And uh, we're always delighted when we add new affiliates uh, to the conspiracy show. So, uh, I've been talking with various members of the uh, disclosure movement In the wake of the citizen hearing on uh, UFO and ET disclosure, which happened in Washington, D.C., the end of uh, April, of course, Stephen Bassett, one of the heavyweights in that field. Uh, But there's another heavyweight also in this field. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, several years ago when I was down in Washington, uh, D.C. And uh, he was... Or is really responsible for, uh, in large measure, the disclosure movement in convincing major, uh, major witnesses, major uh, military people, uh, to come forward and go on the record about uh, UFOs, and that, of course, is Dr. Do- and that, of course, is uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, who is, I must say, a very imposing figure, rather intimidating. He does not suffer fools lightly. Uh, I remember. We arrived at his apartment in Washington, D.C., and we were about maybe five or six minutes late, and he was not impressed. He said, you know, I was an emergency room doctor. Five or six minutes could be the difference between life and death. And I thought, wow, point taken, uh, Dr. Greer. Now, however, he is really the the subject of a, a brand new feature-length documentary film called Serious which follows Dr. Stephen Greer, as I say, an emergency room doctor turned UFO researcher, as he struggles to disclose top-secret information about classified energy and propulsion techniques. Sirius deals not only with the subject of UFO and ET visitation disclosure, but also with the advanced, clean, and alternate energy technology that's getting them here. Sirius goes into eye-opening detail regarding how the disclosure of such technology, some of which have been suppressed for decades, can enable humanity to leave the age of the polluting petrodollar, transform society, and improve mankind's chances for their survival. The film includes numerous government and military witnesses to UFO and E.T. secrecy. It also explains the connection to free energy and provides not only the vision of contact with E.T. civilizations, as regularly witnessed by the CE5 contact teams featured therein, but also the paradigm-shifting physical evidence of a medically and scientifically analyzed DNA-sequenced humanoid creature of unknown classification found in the Atacama Desert, Chile. Additionally, eye-opening are the credentials and pedigree of the science and medical team behind the potentially profound and historical announcement. Uh, Joining me to talk more about this feature-length documentary film, Sirius, is an Emmy Award-winning film director, Amardeep Kalika, and the co-founder of ETLet'sTalk.org and also the founder of the CE5 Global Initiative, which is a term describing a fifth category of close encounters with extraterrestrial intelligence, characterized by mutual bilateral communication rather than unilateral contact. Costa Macris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Armadeep and Costa. How are you?
3: Thank you very much. Hey. I'm just fine. Uh, n- Thank now,
1: Armadiep, I, I understand that you like to be referred to as Arm. Can I call you Arm?
4: Absolutely. You can call me
1: arm. Okay. And uh, Acosta, welcome to you as well. Let me uh, let me start by uh, asking you how you got involved in this film and how you came to know Dr. Stephen Greer.
4: Um, we were doing a script for a, a studio, mini-studio here. Uh, we wrote a script that had to do with extraterrestrials and this whole endeavor and exciting research that's coming out about it. Uh, and I picked up the phone and I said, uh, Dr. Greer, could uh, we meet, because I really want to, at the end of the script, to send people to www.disclosureproject.com. He said, well, let's, we could do better than that. I'm in L.A., let's have a, a dinner meeting. So we had, we sat at dinner, and immediately he understood where we were in terms of narrative film, and narrative means a fictional, right? Documentary means the truth. Um, and he goes... I go to him... Uh, we want to make this as, as close to the truth as possible. So if there's anything that we could talk about about this, he was, he was open. He was like, no, let's really talk about it. And then he started telling me about how, uh, he has a Yogi flew 15 feet and all these miraculous things happened to him. And he was, um, he was abducted for lack of a better word by, you know, extraterrestrials and they put back down to have a mission you know, and I was like, oh my God, this is an interesting character. He, he himself is such an interesting character, whether it be a lightning rod for good or bad, he's interesting. So I said to him, I said, hey, what about a documentary on you and all of the situation that we're seeing and the whole community that is coming together? And that's where we hit it off. You know, and he was like, how do we do that? And I was like, you know, there's a thing called crowdfunding. Uh, lo and behold, we became the highest crowdfunded documentary to date. Um, that doesn't, you know, that's, that's amazing in its own right, because crowdfunding is changing the way people do business. Uh, it's the way the Encyclopedia Britannica was written. It was actually crowdsourced. Uh, so not just with funding, but scientists uh, levied and gave their articles to uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. So that's how we that's how we met, that's how we got off the ground, and we then we started going into research and stuff like that.
1: Let me get to uh th- that was uh, Arm Kalika, and uh, let, me, let me give me the pronunciation of your last name. Is it Kalika or Kaleka?
4: It's uh, Kalika. Kalika, uh, but it can also be Kalika. Kalika. Uh, the that's, uh, that's the uh, pronunciation in Indian.
1: All right, let's uh, get uh, Costa McCreese in here. Now, you are, first of all, uh, explain what uh, the CE5 Global Initiative is all about, Costa.
3: Certainly. Um, it's um, an inspiration that came from Dr. Greer's vision of citizen ambassadors who would learn the CE5 Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind protocols that Dr. Greer had been lecturing about, writing about, and teaching. Uh, to people uh, by the hundreds and thousands all over the the planet. And so the idea was that um, uh, I could organize all these people from all over the world who were using these C-5 protocols um, in a coordinated monthly um, effort, Uh, usually on a Saturday nearest the new moon when we would have a dark sky, and try to build up a... a, um, a wave of, um, of more and more sightings through our efforts. So the Global CE5 Initiative uh, began in October 2010. We started out with 40 teams at that time, uh, spread over maybe about a dozen countries, and, and now we've actually grown at, um, through the auspices of ETLet'sTalk.org to more than 3,200 members um, all over the world, but comprising more than 50 countries. So our, I, our idea is to, at least once a month, get together over a 24-hour period, no matter where, where we are in whatever location, and despite the fact we may never meet and know each other, still in the virtual kind of community, we approach the ET presence here on Earth, the many races that um, are visiting and helping, with our uh, goodwill, with peaceful intentions, and with the, the intention to do bilateral communication, interactive communication, not just passive, because what CE5 really is about is a human-initiated contact with uh, the ET intelligence, uh, or as I I like to call them, our star friends, and then an ongoing communication in many, many different ways. So this global CE5 initiative is really on the vanguard of uh, humans interacting with this ET presence in a very intelligent, very loving, and co-creative kind of way to see what we as ambassadors and what they as visitors uh, can create together, how we can help each other, because we have the survival of the earth both in, in common and of humanity and all the life forms here. Um, the ETs have stated that they're very uh, concerned about uh, the many challenges and problems that have been created here, and I don't have to mention to your listeners you know, what those are, but they do include in the list, you know, wars, environmental destruction, uh, the the fossil fuel problem that we have, et cetera, et cetera. So we have something in common, and the Global C5 Initiative is bringing our teams together every month uh, to talk with the ETS and communicate in whatever way is is appropriate. And we consider that being something that uh, is not has never been done on this scale before. We intend to grow to thousands of teams in all countries of the world, and we're on our way to doing that. And that's why we created org to coordinate this great citizens' movement for doing this communication.
1: What form does this bilateral communication with these ET races present here on Earth uh, take? I mean, how do you communicate with
3: them? We use uh, what we call a a consciousness-based approach. Anybody who's uh, ever heard of an alpha state where you can get into um, a very relaxed mode physically and mentally and emotionally where you're um, though you're relaxed you're still aware of what's what's around you now this is a a kind of heightened kind of vibration a frequency the ET races that are visiting here can attune to that, they can can find you and communicate with you um, at at that level now the communication uh, after it's initiated by the human will often be responded to in many different ways by the ET presence. It doesn't have to just be a sighting in the sky. Um, although that's very thrilling and exciting and you know, no matter how many times it happens to me and others, we, we, um, and it, it always remains fresh, you understand? But the communication can come in other ways. Um, the, EPs, the ETs rather can use uh, telepathy for those of us who are able to, to communicate in that way. They can uh, work through our lucid dreams. They can uh, use electrical phenomenon. We often have um, radar detectors going off in the middle of uh, places that are very remote where there's no signals. We have um, um, smartphones that turn on and and many, many other things like that that get reported by our groups. So the communication comes in a very large variety of ways and that is not just about the lights in the sky, as exciting as that is.
1: Costa MacReese is uh, with us, co founder of ETLet'sTalk.org and the founder of the CE5 Global Initiative. In addition, Armadeep uh, Kalika is with us, Emmy Award winning uh, director, and uh, two of the principals involved in the feature length documentary, Sirius. Which uh, follows the, uh, the life of Dr. Stephen Greer An emergency room doctor turned UFO researcher As he struggles to disclose top secret information About classified energy and propulsion techniques We'll talk about that as well And this fascinating uh, uh, story Also contained in the film And that is this humanoid creature Of unknown classification That was discovered in a desert in Chile Back with more of The Conspiracy Show Stay with us talking about the feature-length documentary film Sirius, about the the life and work of uh, Dr. Stephen Greer uh, who's no uh, stranger to listeners of this program uh, but it's also about the disclosure of uh, free energy technologies and uh, advanced propulsion systems and also the discovery of this humanoid creature uh, found in the uh, desert in Chile. It's almost three films uh, in one, brought together nicely uh, through the work of Emmy Award-winning director um, Arm Kalika, who was uh, born in India, came to America because of religious persecution, and uh, uh, his father was tragically killed in a mass shooting at the Sikh temple uh, uh, in Wisconsin last uh, year, not uh, almost a year ago now. And uh, yeah. so, Arm, you've really taken active... Advocacy role in championing for peace as a result of that, and and you consider this film serious, a tool in bringing people together. How so?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we a lot of my job is to uncover truth as a documentarian and spread it, or at least try to get closer to what is true and what is not true. In the situation with my father, where you know, religiously we were religiously persecuted in India, and then we. I we'll have a white extremist who came into our temple and attacked it and killed six people. Everybody in this, you know, that knew that we were making the film cried, well, this is a government conspiracy, this is a government conspiracy. And I had to stop everybody that was uh, around me that was saying that, because I said, look, and there wasn't that many. There was only a couple of people around me that, that who knew the whole information that so could this possibly be. Um, and, of course, I had to stop everybody and say, no, it, it Cannot be because it doesn't. It doesn't match reason. It doesn't match logic. It doesn't match the map that is already set up. Um, you give a good a, a good summary of the film, and one of the, the themes that we have to deal with in the film is free energy uh, and the idea of technological advancement to the point that we can become a peaceful society, and that everybody asked me about, they're like, did you guys find devices? And we did find some devices. And of course, we were dismayed or swayed away from other devices uh, for political reasons, which almost always had to do with capitalism, and had nothing to do with government conspiracy. It had to do with the idea, well, in in our case, I'm not going to say that all over the world, you know, patents are not suppressed. I think that they are suppressed. I'm not going to say that there is a secret hand that fits aside certain leadership positions in our government, and the only reason we call them a secret society is because they themselves don't want to be known, and so they must be just labeled a secret society, and there, is, there are those groups of people that create assassination attempts, coup d'etats, like, and use uh, whatever ill or uh, teams surrounding them to do so. So it, it's really hard as a filmmaker to separate what's false from what's real. And that's our job as a documentary filmmaker.
1: You mentioned that uh, you you got a glimpse of some of this free energy technology or advanced weapon or advanced propulsion systems. Tell me a little bit more about, about that. What are we talking about? Did you see Did you see hardware? Did you see or did you see documents alluding to such hardware?
4: Oh well, yeah, definitely. Like you'll see in the film, we get a great device from uh, Paul Murad, an engineer who used to work in. Uh, the Department of Defense, and, you know, had a lot of connections. And when we ask a question point blank on camera, um, what do you know about these secret people? Are they already far ahead in this kind of stuff? Watch his face. He chuckles and he can't answer because he looks at the camera and he looks at the Ted Loader, Dr. Ted Loader, as he's asking a question, and he he knows. He's, paying, he's playing coy, and you can tell as an audience member, but he says, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And just stops right there. And um, so the, the, his device, it was an amazing device. It uh, had a 7% uh, weight reduction in terms of it spun magnetically and had a certain amount of input or pulse. So that was the closest I saw to anti-gravity, you know. And then new energy devices, um, we were given a lot of clips from other people to use and like I said you, making a film, especially in given the situation with the way it was crowdfunded and the way that uh, the financing came together and the distribution models and the marketing models, we were handcuffed at some points to to go after certain leads that we did have, you know. And I'll just say that's because of time and resources.
1: I believe it was uh, Dr. Greer who told me once on this program uh, that you know, people have paid the ultimate price in blood for attempting to disclose uh, this free energy or a free energy system or an advanced propulsion system uh, to the public. And I, I believe he mentioned a, a a former head of the CIA who was found face down in the Potomac River as an example. Uh, so I, I guess I would throw this question to you, Costa, as someone who is um, really dedicating his life. Attempting to reach out to these et races that may be interacting with us or you would say are definitely re- interacting with us here on earth i mean how how do you reconcile uh i guess the fact that they they being the elites who have this this uh, advanced technology and and the rest of us don't uh, and they're willing to kill to prevent us from getting it i mean I mean how how is this being perceived by the uh, these ET races knowing uh, you know that the people are dying as a result of this and, and they can't get the technology to to us, the public?
3: I'm sure that uh, and I can't speak for them about this. <laughs> I haven't asked that question, but just from my educated, educated guess, I would say that, of course they're very concerned about this. Uh, they are concerned about uh, how this small group of elite few are pulling the strings in, in many different areas but obviously uh, free energy is one of those very key areas that's the 600 trillion dollar uh, business um, uh, or rather the oil fossil nuclear games a 600 trillion dollar business that is threatened by free energy so the uh, the extraterrestrials of course are concerned when they see human beings, uh, you know, being abused, murdered, bought off, uh, and in so many other ways having their inventions um, sequestered or taken from them, um, it, I, I can only guess that it must be frustrating for them. Uh, they will not, from what I understand, intervene in in the kind of ways maybe we wish that they would. To just. Um, uh, you know, show up on the White House lawn, for example. People always bring that up, and and just uh, show themselves being here. I, I think there are there's a respect for human free will, and the fact that we need to be able to solve our problems, to to find our own truth, and to act on it, in order to grow. Um, you know, into a real uh, a real worldwide civilization. So I don't think that they're here to to solve all that for us, but they're here. to To help us where they can and where we give them permission to do so, Um, therefore, they probably have to to watch in horror at at some of this behavior. Now, having said that, there may be many many times when they may have been given permission to intervene and to save lives of of people who are doing good work um, in this area and in in other areas that are in our common interest. As being the human and E.T. interest. So uh, people have said that um, they've seen E.T. craft following chemtrails, for example, and cleaning them up, or around the Fukushima reactor, trying to do work to alleviate the, the levels of radiation. The stories go on and on. The experiences go on and on in that vein where there is some help that's being given. So I can't say that uh, the, um, the star civilizations out there or here rather, are being totally passive about it. Um, it's, it's not my call to know in what situation they would intervene and in what they wouldn't because there's a far bigger picture than I, cer- I certainly can, can see in terms of what's viable when. But I do have faith and some knowledge that where they can, they do protect us, they do work with us, and there may be many ways that we will, may never learn about how how well we were protected. Uh, One of those, by the way, is the fact uh, from many different sources, people talk about how um, StarCraft have shown up around nuclear installations, and we're told that there are many times when uh, nuclear wars have been prevented because they have been able to um, temporarily shut down weapons on both sides or one side or wherever the aggression was happening in order to avert World War III, which, as we all know, would be... Pretty darn catastrophic for the whole planet. Um, that's probably an extreme example where they would have been allowed uh, to intervene. So, so it's kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes they can they can help out these inventors, and you know, to, to the point of your question. And sometimes perhaps they cannot. Uh, the, may the day come when we have full open contact and disclosure, and the powers that have been the controllers are no longer here. And then we can work openly with these civilizations because they have amazing technologies. And free energy, of course, is, is, is one of those great ones. Um, a lot of your listeners might ask, well, free energy, that's nice. How do these ETs really affect my daily life? You know, I've got to go to work. I've got to pay my bills. I've got to educate my kids. I know they're kind of out there. I sort of believe, why does it matter to me and what can I do? I'm only one person. And at etletstalk.org, we answer that question by saying it has everything to do with you. When you form a community such as we have to make bilateral communication with with these ETs, we're actually creating a positive future for ourselves. We're being active about it and not passive. If uh, we were able to engage and bring these ET civilizations here on Earth out in the open, the free energy they have would power our homes. It would run our cars, our factories, our cities, our nations, people's work hours, work weeks, would be reduced because we wouldn't have to just suddenly fight for all these basic survival things that could be provided by the free energy from the quantum vacuum of space these E.T. civilizations have solved these problems and it's not like to say just about uh, the lights in the sky it's about the lies on the ground they've been they've been covered up because bringing this free energy would liberate many nations uh, it, could be, it, it would turn into the end of poverty of hunger Why fight wars over limited oil and fossil fuel resources when you have free energy? So you can see, then, that the good that could come to all of humanity from uh, this open contact and cooperation with these civilizations is immeasurable. We could have, um, you know, a new earth, a golden age, and that's what we're striving for. Uh, At ETLet'sTalk.org, we're training people to go out into the field and to make this communication, and as... Uh, one individual, maybe we don't count, but when there's thousands of us like, like there are now and we're growing every day, then we're going to make an impact. And the ETs will someday be able to, to walk the uh, the earth with us and bring some of these technologies. And did I mention, you know, uh, medical technologies, other scientific marvels that we can only dream of that, that would be available to us. But first we have to be peaceful and uh, solve some of our own problems in getting along
1: let me uh, okay. throw this uh, uh throw this over to uh to to um the director uh, arm uh, kalika and in in the film i mean you're talking to to government uh, and military witnesses some of these uh, people i i presume uh know more than they let on on camera uh do you get did you get the sense from making this film that there is this chasm within government and the military uh on one side you have those who want to disclose, they think it's the right thing to do. It It's probably even the, you know, it's the moral imperative. Uh, then you have the others who don't want to disclose, but maybe for good reason. Maybe they feel that we're not prepared for such a, a paradigm shift. If you were to introduce, for example, free energy into a system that's reliant upon, you know, the, 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 the petrodollar, the economy, I mean, would go... Through a major cataclysmic shift, uh, so let me throw that out to you, Arm. Do you, I mean, what is your sense of those uh, who, who don't want to disclose? Do you think that maybe, in, at some level, they might even have a point?
4: Well, um, I I'll try to be short because you know it, it is kind of a, a difficult one because in this community there is a lot of professing, uh, and I as a documentarian like to ask questions just like you asked, but. Uh, I think people should be asking themselves these same questions, and in terms of extraterrestrials or disclosure of the situation or free energy, I think you got to think of... You purposely don't bump into another human when you walk by him, right? You give them their personal space to grow or to walk or to move. And the same thing with uh, civilizations as large. They know not to go take their ships and, you know, just land on other people's soil and pass out, you know, white blankets with, you know, TB in them and wipe you out. It's just not ethically right. And if you're going to be this advanced over a million years, I do believe, you know, you're going to have a high uh, understanding of ethics.
1: All right, let me just uh, jump in here. Sorry to interrupt, Arm. We're going to sure. take a time out when we come back, though. I'll get your sense on the those in the military and the government that don't want to disclose. And I guess I'm, I'm asking whether you can see their point to a certain extent that we may not be ready for this. But we'll uh, we'll get to that uh, when we come back. Arm Kalika and Costa Macris, two of the principals involved in the documentary film Sirius, here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back, Amardeep Kalika, Emmy Award-winning director and. Costa Macreese, co-founder of etletstalk dot my guests as we discuss the uh, documentary film Sirius, which is, as I say, really three films in one. It's uh, it's about the uh, the life of Dr. Stephen Greer, an emergency room doctor turned UFO researcher, and one of the principal driving forces behind the disclosure movement, along with people like uh, uh, Stephen Bassett, um, who organized the recent citizen hearing on UFO disclosure in Washington. Uh, but further, the film is also about Uh, the uh, ongoing effort to disclose uh, advanced uh, propulsion systems. How are these UFOs uh, getting to our our neck of the woods? Uh, Also, free energy systems. And then we have this amazing humanoid-like creature of unknown classification found in the uh, uh, Atacama Desert in Chile, now, before we get to the uh, the humanoid, uh, let me throw this question out again, and, and um, uh, Costa or Army Deep, you can uh, both jump in on this if you'd like. I guess what I'm asking is, those we tend to, I think, uh, look at this in a maybe in, in black and white. Those that are in favor of UFO disclosure are good, and those that are in uh, in favor of keeping a lid on this are bad. And I think there's probably a lot of gray area in there as well. And what I'm, I guess, I'm getting at is. Is it possible that some in the in the in the let's not disclose camp might have a point? For example, introducing free energy into our current economic system, which is totally reliant upon uh, petroleum, uh, mm-hmm. agriculture, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, energy. Uh, mm-hmm. The the U.S. dollar basically is pegged to the uh, to a to a barrel of oil. If all of a sudden that goes away, fossil fuel, it could have a cataclysmic uh consequence on on our I mean ultimately perhaps, you know, when we come out the other side, it's good. But to get from here to there, we could have some some really rough sledding. So I guess what I'm saying is do you think it's possible that those that are against disclosure for that reason might have a point?
4: Absolutely. I mean uh Thomas Jane, the voiceover of the film, uh, a legitimate actor and a technologist, and he's a futurist in so many ways, uh, point blank always says to me, disclosure is not a good idea. There's so many problems with that methodology and thought process, so there is a lot of middle gray. I'd, I'd liken it to evolution, though. Like, if we cannot survive a cataclysmic shift, or in terms of, let's not just say weather, let's say economies all of a sudden we just start going into rage over the, the economical shift, or we can't survive the idea that there is a whole another civilization not so uh, far from us. All those things right there uh, give us the weakness that allow people to say we cannot you know, let this out in the open. And so they fight for it. They stop it. They're, people are sitting on boards and having the same thing tanked over and over and they go, people can't handle it yet. so. Our idea is pretty much we got to get the civilization to the point where it can handle it. Uh, and how do you do that? You, it's evolution, it's Charles Darwinian. We need to change far quicker than the truth that's going to be hitting us and smacking us in the face quite soon. And everybody sees the writing on the wall. There's going to be an economic, economic shift. A, because we're becoming a type one society very fast, as Michio Kaka would say. B, because we're doing extremely caveman-like things, and we're just hitting the point where we're able to use our spirit and mind together, that is going to, if people can't survive that, if people, you know, uh, like, for example, this, this uh, former white extremist runs into our temple and shoots five people and then shoots himself. he can't survive the idea that America's going to change, and there's going to be people with turbans and beards, you know, at a bowling alley. That is what's setting people off. That's what's creating the idea that we won't be ready. So as Costa would say, or as Steve would say, or as a number of people would say, the problem really isn't out there as much the problem is here. So we believe extraterrestrials are just keeping their space. They kind of can sense this. There's also Secret Society members that sense this, and and I do believe a number of people in the Secret Society are part extraterrestrial. And there's a number of star child theories that we can go into and a number of things i witnessed on this film that i could absolutely avow that certain people have some sort of dna shifting because they're becoming star child or they're being uh connected to these extraterrestrial ufos or lights in the sky or whatever it is
1: all right let me um uh, take a time out come back and uh i want to get into this DNA sequenced humanoid creature discovered in a desert in Chile, which also features very prominently in the film Sirius. Armadeep Kalika and Costa Macris here on the Conspiracy Show discussing Sirius. All right, let's get right to a discussion on this uh, DNA sequenced humanoid creature featured in the film Sirius. Armadeep Kalika is with us. Costa Macris, co founder of ETLet'sTalk.org. Arm Kalika is the uh, director. Uh, give us the backstory. Where was this uh, creature found, uh, when, and under what circumstances?
4: Okay, it was found about uh, 12 years ago. There's a little bit of shift of time in terms of our research and what people say. Um, it was used uh, in the Chilean desert. It was found in Chile, South America. Um, it petrified in some way, in terms of the dryness of uh, the, the area that it was in. And that is um that is connected to the, the science that we're seeing, the evidence that we're seeing. So it's also, this little being was then used in a kind of like a sideshow, like a freak. Like people would pay five bucks to go see this little alien being, but that's what the guy kept saying. Because there's stories in that area of sky beings and lights in the sky and little beings dropping to the ground, you know, all these amazing stories. Um, So a Spaniard comes in, and this is a dozen years ago or 14 years ago, and this is where this kind of gets a little blurry. He comes in a couple times and keeps seeing the being, keeps being affected. And then he goes one time, I want to buy that from you. And he pays a handsome fee. And he takes it back to Spain to a little institute in Spain. So it's sitting there right now. It's the institute that we have connections to. We did post who they are in the film. Um, You can check it out. We're trying to be as transparent as possible. Um, And we asked them, Become filmed there. Can we also, while we're filming, take two snippets of matter, the bones, the ribs, uh, the bone marrow, uh, brain tissue, stuff like that? And they said, Yeah, you can, but you have to pay a certain amount of money. And at that point, we had crowdfunded the film, but we didn't have a lot of extra money to go pay for something like this, so this was out of the blue. Um, because we didn't assume that they would say yes to something like that. We thought that would be a very so they gave us a number. We crowdfunded it. We go over there. Um, the thing, I was not able to go over there as a director because what happened on August 5th affected our whole schedule. And, like, the weeks after, and I couldn't technically, I had to send my second crew. And Emory, Dr. Emory Smith is the person that actually went there and filmed and was able to grasp and hold the being and move it around. And, and uh, he's got a sign science background. He worked for the military, um, medical background. And so they go over there, to spin the bone. We take the bone marrow at Stanford. Uh, one of the top geneticists there and Dr. Gary Nolan, and he's one of the top stem cell guys. And he, he's one of those top DNA guys, uh, in the whole world. He's always traveling. When we talk, it's, it's all over the place, Moscow, Japan, wherever. So Dr. Gary Nolan decides to take this on as like a pet project. And little do I know, you know, like he found out about this through the crowdfunding and he really liked the videos and he was wondering what was going on with this stuff. Um, we connected to him that way and then we told him there's this little bone marrow that we need to bring to you. So he studied it, examines it, does the mapping of the genome on it. Uh, he's still mapping to this day, but he found some really odd results. A, from the CT scan, the MRI, the um, pictures, you'll see that the being actually only has 10 ribs. He found that out because he referenced all of his charts and maps and graphs to another doctor, uh, Dr. Lockman, who's also at uh, UCLA and uh, Stanford. And Dr. Lachlan notices these oddities, creates a full medical report which we published, and then Dr. Gary Nolan um, continues testing. And he finds other things. Uh, for example, the the gene that affects progeria, uh, the quick aging disease, most people call it, um, and the gene that affects infant dwarfism, which would, somebody could argue that this was a dwarf in the 22 week of size gestation. Um, none of those were affected; they were normal. There was no mutation, um, and those are things that would be. Those, so then he checked the next 30 or 40 factors, and little nothing was abnormal. So then we have a problem here. There's a phenotype-genotype difference. The, the, the being looks different than its DNA according to our map. So A, our map doesn't map this person's map. Okay. And then B, there's about 10% difference in the DNA all in all, like junk DNA and all the other things that people are finding are not so much junk, they're actually uh, some sort of marker or a telltale sign of that being. And so he's he in the film tells you he's he's perplexed. He is was a scientist. He is a scientist. He wants to know this thing. He thinks the DNA is going to tell him what it is. And at the end, he can't say yes or no. I don't know what it is.
1: Well, th- this they were able to extract. I'm guessing then mitochondrial DNA, which would 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 indicate the the mother. The uh, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's it's called B2 haplotype B2. Uh,
4: so the the female side of this being and the DNA, DNA comes from Chile, or that region. That region has had that haplotype for quite a bit
1: now, thousands of years. So this is a so, hybrid. And, this is a hybrid, then. We're saying it has yeah, a, human, yeah. a human mother. And what about the nuclear... I like nucle- the way you think. And the nuclear DNA. What is Yeah, that, that, I like that, the way you think. What does that tell us? Because it... Because think about it like this. If, uh,
4: if you and I are going to clone Dolly the sheep, right, I'm going to take uh, male sampling and female sampling of some certain cells, I'm going to put them in an egg and put it in a new cell, and that new cell is going to start replicating itself. Well, the new cell in our, in our land are, are female. They're the ones with the egg. So if something can fertilize that egg somehow, some way, it can affect change in the DNA down the line. You know, and so we had this little being that was born a hundred, or was died a hundred years ago, and now everything is showing that the being is actually six years old. Dr. Gary Nolan's jaw dropped because all this stuff of like bone calcification and the way they're measuring it and everything, all the results coming back—it's six years old, and he's wondering how can a six-year-old only be that, only be six inches large, and have all of these amazing features, these oblong eyes, these ten ribs, a a jaw that's really, you know, mal-like nutrition, or a jaw that's, you know, just weaker than a normal human jaw, and what would this mean to everybody? And, I mean, I kid you not, after the film was done, not not many people have even batted an eye. It's been sad. There's so many amazing results, and people don't even look at that as, like, a a bona fide found specimen of something amazing in the universe.
1: Many many parallels here with Lloyd Pye, uh, the caretaker of the Starchild skull, who uh, uh, you know had a heck of a time getting a a, um, a lab to you know to do the genetic yeah. testing on this because you can imagine the the political fallout. You know, for a, for a company that specializes in genetic testing, you're doing what? You're performing tests on on a, an alien human hybrid. <laughs> well,
4: in, in this case, uh, Dr. Gary Nolan was actually the person that debunked the, um, the star child skull, and he showed it with the DNA, and he showed it with something. It was like a, a genetic mutation that we do see in humans, and then you found multiple cells that had it, and DNA actually pointed right there. The thing is human; it has the same. How could it have the same exact one million zeros and ones?
1: You know, but in this case, so he's saying that the this android, this humanoid rather, this humanoid creature, uh, is is not a um, you know a, a, a malformed uh, a child, a human child. This is definitely sort of female, uh, human female mother, but father origin unknown. Is that the conclusion?
4: Right as of right now, yeah, and um, and I think to answer your question. I'm an objective filmmaker. I understand this thing from the science and the inside out and the integrity with which everybody worked with, and I wholeheartedly believe this is something that's interesting on our planet and could be um, a half-human, half-extraterrestrial uh, being. Some sort of DNA was hatched here in this way.
1: Post- it's complex. Let me get Costa's reaction. Uh, Costa McCrease, your your thoughts on this humanoid creature.
3: Well, I um, don't have any more specialized knowledge than what Arm has been talking about. So like so many other people, I'm following uh, the research into this being and the dynamic changes that are coming as as Dr. Nolan continues to do research. And he actually stated in the film, this is not the end of the story. Um, After the film ends, I welcome other people to to continue their research and uh, bring new information so that we all can come to some, some kind of a con- conclusion. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm sitting here and watching that the, the, those same developments like you are and hoping that uh, somewhere down the line that there's an answer there. Um, now, whether this one winds up being partly of uh, ET origin or not, um, still, what position I take and what my groups take is that we know there are other civilizations here anyway now. And if you watch a lot of ancient aliens, there's a lot of archaeological and other types of evidence that shows they've been here in our history in many places for thousands of years. So this particular being is of interest because it's in the limelight right now. But it's by no means the only kind of evidence that we have on Earth that we have been visited and are still being visited. Well, that's exactly and that's right. Kind of I mean, what our position is. Here's, a, is.
1: I, I'm so cynical at this point that, uh, you know, if, for example, they were to prove scientifically, uh, categorically, that this was an alien-human hybrid and therefore, you know, 100 uh, percent proof that ETs have been uh, contacting and intermingling with human civilization, that wouldn't be enough. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't get – you know, it should be front page of The New York Times and The Washington Post, but it wouldn't be. Uh, it might get uh, – uh, a quick blurb on the drudge report, and then would be forgotten, so I guess my question to both of you in the, in the few minutes that remain is what 's it going to take for 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 disclosure to take place I mean maybe maybe in for the public it 's already here, but to get official official acknowledgement that that uh, ets are coming to this planet what 's it going to take
3: when the lead, when the people lead the leaders will follow the whole Part and parcel of our movement um, at uh, etletstalk.org is to create, and we are creating, a citizen's movement to do what governments have not done because they can't or they won't. That's disclosure. By sending teams out in the field by the hundreds and the thousands every month, we are allowing people to have their own experiences. So they don't have to rely on authority to tell them what's true and what's not when you've had an experience in the field of seeing a light in the sky that just does not behave like anything known and this happens to scores and hundreds and thousands of people then we will we we will be building up our own knowledge base and we won't need an authority and we don't need an authority right now because of the fact that we're having our direct experiences with ce 5 protocols we don't need that authority to tell us uh... this is what you saw this is what you didn't see pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, et cetera, et cetera. We are becoming our own experts, and in our social community at etletstalk.org, we're sharing the information of our experiences across the world every month and so that we understand that ordinary people are having these experiences now. We don't need millions of dollars in specialized equipment. We use our techniques, the CE5 protocols, and we teach those on etletstalk.org, and we do the work ourselves and that's what i think it's going to take when thousands and millions of people have their own experiences it's something that nobody can take away from them nobody can convince them that you know that they're delusional or under mass hypnosis they will know they will have the authenticity of their experience and when again when that happens in the millions that's when more disclosure is going to come about and the weight of public opinion will force governments to say okay you got us now uh, here, here are all our files. Yeah, we were covering it up, so, Costa. I don't I, know when that will happen, but we're part of the movement that's making that happen right now.
1: Well, I hope you're right, Costa. Uh, Costa Macreese and Armadeep Kalika, uh, two of the principals behind the film Sirius. Uh, very quickly, gentlemen, because we've only got about 15 seconds. How can people see this film? Are you there? Uh, yes. Oh, how can you um, see? How can we see this film? Very quickly.
3: People People can see it all over the internet,
4: online. Theaters, DVDs are out. Uh, Go to serious.neverendinglight.com or seriousdisclosure.com, and you'll be able to watch it right online. And DVDs will be right there pre-sold. And then we'll be doing another theatrical release shortly. Hopefully, cross your fingers, guys. We're fighting a lot of fights over here.
1: All right. Thank you, both gentlemen.
4: Thank you you, Tim Spreen
1: back uh, next week with a brand new show live from Greece. Good night.